Oh, it's my prayer. God, that if anyone in this room is not ready to stand before you dressed in your righteousness alone, that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself. God's people said, amen. Amen. I invite you to be seated, even as the children through grade four are released to the classes that are ready for them. And as we move ahead into God's Word today, we're looking at the, the title of the message today is Unity. You have a note page in your bulletin. I'm not going to be following the outline today, though, because as I've been before the Lord, He's, uh, he's laid something different on my heart from this passage. So I trust that you're ready to hear what He might have to say to you today as it relates to unity and what that looks like in each of our lives. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, John 17 records a prayer that God saved for us and preserved for us. It's a prayer that Jesus offers. And in that prayer, chapter 17 of John, verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's you, that they may be one, that all of them may be one Father, just as I am in you and you are in me. I understand, he's praying that, that those of us who come to know the Lord because of the testimony of, of the apostles that we will be one in the same way that God the Father and God the Son are one. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As we together are in Christ, the world is ready to believe and able to believe that, that God sent Christ. I have given them the glory you gave me. I've been given the glory of God, the same glory that was given to Jesus that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Acts chapter 15 reveals the answer to this prayer of Jesus. In Acts chapter 15, we're reading of the council in Jerusalem, and it's an amazing moment of time in church history as we stop to contemplate that if, if for any reason they were not able to come to a place of understanding and a place of unity, that we wouldn't be here today. But it's Jesus' prayer that we would live in unity that he answers in this text, and I believe that he looks to answer in each one of our lives. I believe that's what we can learn from this passage today. It starts out by saying, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So we've got these two churches, and we understand that there's this church in Antioch, and that's way up north here, about 300 miles from Jerusalem. 
So we've got this church in Antioch, and we've looked at this church. It's an amazing church. It's a vibrant church. It's a church made up of people from all different persuasions. And as this church is made up of people from all different persuasions, the thing that unites them is the saving grace of Jesus Christ that has brought them into a new relationship with God. And, and it's changed their lives so much so that there's a new word made up by the people in the community, and they begin to call them Christians because they're so Christ-like. And, and we've asked the question before, if one of those Christians from Antioch in the first century were brought into our congregation and our meeting, would they say, oh yeah, you guys are Christians? Or would they say, what are you guys up to? So as we stop and think about that, that their lives had been changed so dramatically that the world looked and said, you're Christians. And so God's on the move there. And amazing things are happening. Thousands of people are coming to know the Lord, maybe tens of thousands of people. But at the same time, in Jerusalem, tens of thousands of people are coming to know the Lord. And so there's this move of God that's happening, but the church starts in Jerusalem. And, and as the church starts in Jerusalem, it starts among the Jewish people because, you see, the thing is, we have a hard time with this word church. I have a hard time with the word church because the word in the original language that we translate church, it's too complicated a word to translate as the word church. And so even as we begin to look at what is the church, we have to, we have to kind of put aside all the things we think church is. And, and in the English language, we understand that the building we're in is the church. And you all got dressed and came to church. Right? How many of you said, I'm going to church today? Yep, okay. Behave in the car. We're on our way to church. <laughs> Anybody say that? No, don't do it. The rest of the time, it's all good. But when we're on the way to church, you behave, you know. You want me to come back there? <laughs> Was that rhetorical, Dad? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, reliving history there for a minute. Okay, it's all good. <laughs> idea of church. That word in the original language carries such a richness with it that has become cheapened. The sacredness has been robbed by our culture and our society. See, when we start thinking about this word in the original language, it's, it's people who have become part of a community, and it's a new community. They have been rescued from that which held them into bondage. And they have been brought into a new community. And we understand and know that as we say community, we realize that a big part of that word is unity. They've been brought together in unity. And the thing that unites them is the fact that, listen, what they were is not who they are anymore. They have been rescued and set free by Jesus. And so even as this church begins, this whole new thing begins in Jerusalem, 
some, some people from this area, and, and it says Judea, and you understand that, that Jerusalem is in Judea. When, when Israel, when the nation of Israel came and they, they took possession of the promised land, they had some land on this side of the Jordan, and then they had the land that God had promised to them on the other side as well. And then when David was king, it was a united kingdom. Solomon, it was a united kingdom. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had some counselors that weren't quite what they should be. And so because of that and because of God's promise, the kingdom was divided and Jeroboam became the king over the ten kingdoms to the north and, and, and Rehoboam and the kings that followed were over Judea. And so our text tells us that some, some believers from the church in Judea took it upon themselves to head on up to, or down to, as we look at in Scripture, down to Antioch in Syria so they took it upon themselves to go down and correct a problem that they saw. And so they went down, and they were teaching the people at the church that unless they were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, they could not be saved. So this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told the, uh, uh, how the Gentiles had been converted. So um, Paul and Barnabas take off, and they're heading up to Jerusalem. And remember that you go up to Jerusalem, it's higher in elevation, but also it's just the fact that it's the city of God, Zion. And so you're going up to Jerusalem. So they're going from Antioch, they're headed up to Jerusalem. As they go through Phoenicia and as they go through Samaria, they're stopping along the way and telling how, how the Gentiles are being converted. And that made everyone glad, it says. This news made all the believers very glad. Amen, right? When you hear somebody came to know the Lord, aren't you glad? So we can understand how that would happen. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, whom they reported everything that God had done through them. So they got into Jerusalem, and they met before the apostles and the elders, and they gave a report of everything that had happened. Now we pick it up at verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. All right, so now there's conflict, right? So what do you do when there's conflict? Well, if your resolution style is avoidance, you run. But otherwise, you, you, you have to deal with this, with this conflict. And so here comes conflict. Now, we have to be really careful when we look at this text because the first thing that this text tells us about these people is that they're believers, right? It says some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. For us to grasp hold of that, we need to grasp hold of what it meant to be a believer at that point in time. And sometimes I think we can lose sight of that. At this point in time, if you were to become a believer... It meant something significant, incredibly significant. See, now sometimes as we present the gospel, we try to make it as easy as possible for people to come into the kingdom of God because we don't want to take a chance that anybody might fall along the wayside. But, but if we look at what the gospel truly is and what the gospel truly requires, we see that it's much more than God has a wonderful plan for your life. And it's not necessarily untrue that God has a wonderful plan for your life, but it, it is untrue what some of us think that wonderful plan is. See, for a believer in, 
in this period of time that Luke is recording for us, we're looking at maybe 15, 16 years since, since Jesus was, was crucified and, and buried and rose again and, and, and ascended into heaven. We're maybe 15, 16, 17 years, you know, past that. So it's pretty recent. I still can remember quite a few things that happened 15, 16 years ago, right? So probably in your lives as well. And so for these people, especially the apostles, they would have understood what this was. And so when you came to a place where you believed in in this point in time, you were repenting and you were turning. And you were turning from something towards something. And it's the same for us, you see, but they would understand it differently because they would turn from everything that was part of their lives, especially these people. These were believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So everything that they held, everything that they were taught, everything that they were brought up believing, they would need to evaluate that in light of something new that had happened, this new covenant. See, that's key for us to remember. The the point in time we're talking about in the church, the reason that word becomes so difficult for us is because it gets understood differently. Even for a Jewish person, when a Jewish person hears the word church, they hear oppression and persecution. Because you see, what happens is what we're looking at right now in the beginning of the book of Acts, the, the church is Jewish. The church is Jewish, and the segment that we're looking at right here in, in, in Acts chapter 15 is this, is this Jewish church trying to say, how in the world do we bring Gentiles into this? Because, listen, that does not make sense, because the whole thing that we've been taught is that there's a difference, and now all of a sudden it's the same. What does that look like? Because it's the unfolding, you see, of salvation history. And we've talked about that thread of redemption that winds its way through the whole Old Testament. And, and we need to understand that, that that is so critically important for us to understand. Paul will write to Timothy and say, All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is God breathed. And when he's writing that, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about all the truths that were revealed. Listen, if we, if we stand and say, I can't believe that God keeps his promises to me, we have to remember that we know that because of all the promises he kept to the Jewish people as he brought them forward. The promise to Abraham, the promise to Noah, the promise to Moses, the promise to David, each one of those looking forward to the new covenant, the new promise that would be fulfilled in Jesus. And so as, they, as they're here these believers are like, what about, what about Moses? Moses is so important. And so believers, if, if you were a Gentile at that point in time, what you'd be doing is rejecting your entire social standing. Everything in the culture was, was about worshiping all sorts of other gods. And you'd have to turn from the worship of all those other gods, and you would have to turn to worshiping the Jewish God. And the Jewish people were the weirdos. Because they only worshiped one God. 
And they claimed that they were his children and his chosen ones. And so you would be turning, and so many people would lose their jobs. They'd lose their families. They lost everything to become part of this believing community. So these people who stand up and say that Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, sometimes when we read that, we think, man, they just do, you know. Listen, this is a transition time. And, and in this transition time, as they're seeking the Lord, they're seeking the Holy Spirit for what is the direction, what is the guidance, he's leading them in the midst of that. So the apostles and elders met to consider the question, and after much discussion, can you imagine, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentile a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? No! We believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. The ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is significant. It's hard to understand what could be happening. Jewish people are, are very um, loud in, in the way that they discuss. And, you know, and, and so I can imagine when it says that the whole groom became silent as Paul and Barnabas began to speak, that there was a Holy Spirit silence that, fle- that just fell over the room as they began to listen as God spoke through Paul and Barnabas to proclaim what was being done. And at the end of the day, this statement, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I've thought a lot about that. What are the ways that we make it difficult? for people who are turning to God. What are the ways that what we do and how we do things make it difficult for people who are turning to God? I love that this group of people as they met, that was their number one concern. Their number one concern was people who were turning to God. And so as they looked at this, this 
problem that had presented itself, this, this seeking for understanding of how does the thread of redemption continue forward in this new covenant. There's all sorts of things we could study about that. I've taught you about that repeatedly, but in the midst of this, I want us to ask ourselves, what are we doing that, that might be making it difficult for people who are turning to God? And I wonder if it isn't at some place and some point, it's, it's, it's our apathy and it's our complacency and it's the fact that, that for us, going to church is this. The author of Hebrews said, we come together so that we can provoke each other to love and good deeds. I love that. That's King James talk. See, we come together, and the reason we come together is so that we can encourage and spur one another on toward the love and good deeds we've been given to do in the Lord. And we come together so that we can, we can have such a, a, a unity in our community, the community of those who've trusted in Christ as their Savior. We come together so that we can have such a unity in the midst of that that when we leave this place, We've been strengthened and encouraged. And we've been able to put off the things that hinder. And we go into the world. Listen, coming to church isn't church. Coming to church is what equips you to go out and be the church. See, as we go out and do the things that God has equipped each one of us to do, See, it's not coming here for what I can get out of it. It's what can I do as I leave this place with the power that I've been given and with the power that's been entrusted to me. I read a quote this week. I need to sit down for this one. Because you see, church isn't a spectator sport. I'm not the star of this thing. Jesus is. And so many times the things I'm saying to you are things I need to hear myself. Somebody sent me a quote this week that a church, church-going person went up to the pastor and said, Pastor, I really didn't like the worship this morning. And the pastor said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. Yeah. The problem is that's not really all that funny, is it? Because all too often I, I come and I, I'm thinking that it all revolves around me. But it doesn't. And if any of you think it revolves around me, you've got to set your sights higher. Because a call on my life has me up there But the sinful nature has me sitting here. <laughs> well, you see, what, what changes us? What causes us to move from putting ourselves in the center to putting God in the center? And listen, my superpower is the Holy Spirit. Do you know there's going to be 11 new superhero movies out in 2019? 
We are obsessed with Marvel and DC Comics. I mean, seriously, right? I can take Superman and the Hulk, no problem. In the first service, it, just the way that God works, one of, our, one of our friends here who goes to church here remembers Al McFadden, okay? And he holds the land speed record in a Ford, or it did at some point in time. So, I mean, this man knows what it means to go fast. So I talked to him a little bit about that during the service. I didn't know what the answers were, so I just started asking questions. Because do you know that a good question is better than a bad answer? Amen. All want to be learners, right? So I said to him, I said, Al, as you're, as you're running down the road in a, drag, in a dragster, you know, is there a supercharger on your engine? And he said, yeah, there's a supercharger. I said, what does the supercharger do? And I hope I was listening carefully enough that I say this correctly. If I didn't, his phone number's in the directory. Give him a call, okay? <laughs> he said, what it does is it sucks air. You know? You know about this? Oh, great, okay, good. Okay, because... If you don't know something, go to somebody who does, you know? Make sure you don't nod the next time I'm talking about something. <laughs> Paul, Paul, you know something about superchargers? All right, good, good. Educate us. What does a supercharger do? It basically just takes in more air, grabs it into the cylinders. So it grabs air and shoves it into the cylinders, Okay. How's the Holy Spirit described in Scripture? Right? Breath, wind, air. Right? And so you get that supercharger. And then Al told me that it helps combustion. Is that right? So it makes the engine really go like crazy. It's like, it's like dumping extra power into an engine. And so I said to him, I said, thanks, Paul. I said, so Al... When you're in a race, do you ever think to yourself, like, eh, I don't think I'll use the supercharger this time? <laughs> he said, no. Then I'm in the race trying to win. Oh, oh, I, I think I read something about that in Scripture too, right? Running the race to win. The letter that they sent to the church in Antioch said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Hmm. How many times have you in your life come to a place where something seemed really good to the Holy Spirit, but you were thinking, eh, I don't know. Maybe that's not quite right. See, I've got this supercharger. So do you. It's, you're running a race. Amen. You know, take a look at, at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Remind yourself that we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses as we run this race set before us, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're running this race to win, and we've been given a supercharger. And so many of us are going out there with our little two-cycle 50cc mini bike motor going, <laughs> you know, right? Like, come on. And my superpower is the Holy Spirit. 
My supercharger is the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. When, when Nicodemus came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, the wind blows where it wills. You need to be born by the Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the power. It's the supercharger. It's ready. To, he's ready to just pour breath and life into you and give you all sorts of power to do that which he's called you to do. And so many times what I do... I'm scared, just flat out scared to use that supercharger. I'm, I'm scared. I, I, if I use that supercharger, what's going to happen? And the reason I'm scared of using the supercharger is because I've spent the majority of my life not using the supercharger, and I've gotten myself into situations that I can't get out of because it's a God-sized deal. And I've been trying to handle it on my own. So what? You have been saved to be sent. You have been rescued to take the message of redemption to the lost. You have become part of a community. To have unity identify us in an answer to the prayer of Jesus. And that unity brings us together so that we spur each other on to go do the love and good deeds that he is calling us to do. Tomorrow's Labor Day. Spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 58, stand firm then. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the works of the Lord because you know that the labor, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We need to go be the church. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be people invested in the word. We need to be people who are sharing the gospel. We need to be people who are ready to embrace suffering for that. And we need to be people who are waiting and expecting to see a miracle from the supercharger in our lives. And what would happen if our services started to get really weird? Like people were healed. Something like that. We'd have to send someone from Judea to come and say, you know what, that's not it. <laughs> listen, are you expecting something miraculous? Because listen, and we're coming into a place in the time when we need it. We need to embrace the fact that this is a battleship, not a cruise ship. And every one of us has a battle station, not a deck chair. And we need to encourage each other, spur one another on, provoke each other to this. Enough. The worship team's coming up. There's so much more I could tell you about this chapter. One day if the Lord tarries, perhaps I will. But I want you to understand that this passage should not be overtaught. 
This passage is not telling us that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. This passage is not telling us that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan or promise. This passage is not telling us that there's not beauty in observing the festivals and traditions that God has laid forward so we can know him. And this church is, or this passage is not teaching that, that Jewish people and Gentiles are now the same because they're separate and distinct because God has a plan for them that will come to, to fruition in his second coming. But this passage is teaching that we need to get serious. So we do it by faith. And this song, as you sing it, think of the words that you're singing, celebrate it. Yeah, God... You know each one of us. You know, Lord, the places where we're just moving along on our little 50cc mini bike engine when we could be roaring through power of the Holy Spirit. Perfect love casts out fear. So tie us into your perfect love, will you please, Lord? Amen.